Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 93 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is A Black Woman in the Land of Misdiagnosis, an interview with Risa Marie Pereira. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guest is Risa Marie Pereira. Risa Marie Pereira is a 30-year-old woman from Union City, New Jersey. Ms. Pereira was just 17 years old when she first started experiencing the symptoms of a tick disease. After a senior trip to upstate New York, Ms. Pereira had extreme abdominal pain. She also started to experience migraines and dizzy spells. Her life was never the same. She first saw her primary care physician, but received no concrete answers. From there, she went on to see over 30 doctors, almost all of whom told her that they didn't know what was wrong with her or they misdiagnosed her. Ms. Pereira was given medicine for depression, her concerns and symptoms were also routinely dismissed by most doctors because she was a black Hispanic woman. She eventually developed pain that was so severe in her shoulders that nobody could touch them. She lost her job, her friends, and could barely function. Ms. Pereira finally had an appointment with a female doctor where she outlined all of her symptoms, and the doctor asked her if she had ever been tested for Lyme disease. Ms. Pereira had never even heard of Lyme disease. Her test came back positive, and she was put on doxycycline. Unfortunately, she had an extreme Herxheimer reaction, something she learned about not from her doctors, but from a Lyme disease support group she joined on Facebook. For the first time, she felt like she wasn't alone. Lyme disease stole 10 years from Ms. Pereira's life, but has given her the determination to give back to the community that has helped her so much. Hi, Risa, and welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, we're really blessed to have you, and I have to extend an apology to you uh, on air. Uh, unfortunately, Matt Sabatella, my co-host, isn't available today because he is required to do some programming at his job to uh, assist them through the coronavirus challenges that we're all facing. So uh, the bad news I have for you, Rice, is you have just me today. <laughs> no, that's okay. I, I totally understand. Well, thank you for being so understanding. So, Rice, can you share with our folks uh, where you grew up? Um, I grew up. Staten Island, New York, for most of my life. And then I moved to the Bronx in my early 20s for college. All right. And uh, I, I was actually born in the Bronx, so I'm glad we have another connection. So, <laughs> Risa, tell me, uh, tell me about uh, what your childhood was like. Now, I, I understand from our earlier conversation that you began to show your symptoms of your tick disease when you were about 20, and you didn't get diagnosed until you were close to 30. So I'd like to first focus on what your life was like before the diagnosis? What was your life like for the first 20 years of your life? I guess I had like a normal, you know, childhood. My parents were separated and then they got divorced. But I had what I would say is a normal childhood. Like I played baseball. I went rollerblading, bike riding. I would travel with my mom every summer. You know, like normal kid stuff. I would fall, scrape things. I would like jump off furniture and hit my head. Like I, I did like crazy things when I was a kid. And what kind of relationship did you have with your mom where you were able to travel every year? So actually, my mom worked a few jobs when I was a kid. So her her extra income was saved for us to be able to travel. So either we would travel like internationally or if that was too much, um, we would do like a, you know, like a, a trip within the States. So we always went somewhere every single year. So it sounds like your mom worked really hard so that you could have some additional enrichment in your life, that you were learning not just in the school system, but you were learning outside of the school system by doing a lot of traveling with your mom. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, she, she worked so much extra so I could pretty much go to dance class or do gymnastics or so we can travel. Like she, She's a rock star. 
And when you say your mom was a rock, so that means you and she had a really good relationship during that period of your life. Oh, yeah, definitely. What were your goals? Meaning you during this first period of your life where you're growing up in Staten Island and you're going to high school and you're getting all this both educational experience in the school system and then the ad additional enrichment that your mom was able to provide for you. What goals did you set for yourself? So initially when I was a kid, my goal when I was older was to be a veterinarian because I love animals and that was like, I never thought I would change my mind. And then once I hit junior high school, I went to a performing arts school and my life kind of shifted to the arts. And then I joined a dance team and I remember I was like, I'm not even going to go to college. Like, I'm going to be a dancer and that's it. Like, that's going to be my schooling. And my mom was like, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. So then to when I was in the performing arts school, I noticed that I like to write and tell stories. So when I went to college, I went to school for TV and video production because essentially I wanted to be a screenwriter, which I kind of still do want to be a screenwriter. But I was more, I think I was more driven to do that when I started college than I am now. So you discover that you have many talents when you're in high school and you now uh, are about to go on to college. Um, where did you go to college and what were you seeking to, to do after you completed your college education? So I started my first two years at CCNY in Harlem, so City College of New York. And then during like my second year there, Lehman College had opened up this new video facility. So I transferred to Lehman and I finished my two, uh, my last two years there. Actually, my last three years there because I was really sick when I was 19. So I did so poorly in school, I pretty much had to like make up another year. So I did five years. Okay, let's, so let's focus on that period of time in your life. So you're this healthy, athletic dancer and now pursuing another artistic career. And you um, now start to feel what you now know to be the symptoms of the tick disease. What were the symptoms and how did they begin to affect you physically? So I remember, I remember the exact day it happened. I was 19. It was September of 2009. And I was at my job before I was going to go to school. So I worked in the morning and then I went to school in the afternoon and I bent down to pick up something. And when I stood back up, like everything was spinning. And I mean, like spinning to the point where like, I couldn't stand up straight. And my boss was like, Oh, just sit down. Like maybe you're just hungry. So I ate and, you know, I didn't really think much of it. I was like, whatever. Like, I don't know, maybe it's that's my like blood sugar is low or something like that. And then I went to school and it, it got worse and I'm like, okay, this is weird. And then it just literally was, it, it lasted for so long. I was like, I don't know what this is. So I went to the doctor obviously. And then, um, you know, they're probably, they were like, oh, it's probably just vertigo or, you know, some, a headache or something. It'll, it should go away in a few weeks. And it literally didn't go away. So now where were you in your educational experience? Were you at CCNY at this time or you were at uh, Lehman College at this time? I was still at CCNY. I went to Lehman when I was 20. Okay. So you're 19 years old. You're at CCNY. You have this very difficult experience and you go to a medical doctor or did you go to some other healthcare professional? No, I just went to my regular primary care doctor because he was actually down the street from where I live. So it was easy for me to get into him to, you know, speak to him. Were you still living in Staten Island at this time? I actually was still living in Staten Island, so I had a really long commute. Every day I traveled about like three to four hours. 
to school, to work, home. It was, it was a long day. Now, what type of community were you living in at that time when you were living in Staten Island? Was it rural? Was it suburban? Was it urban? What type of community were you living in at that time? It's weird. St. George is like such a weird neighborhood. It's kind of a mix of everything. But my, I was living in a, in a building, but the area is kind of a mix of like homes and buildings. And were you aware of ticks and tick diseases at the time that you were living in Staten Island and around the time that you had gotten sick? I had no idea you could get, I didn't even know you could get sick from a tick. Like I didn't even, I had no idea. When I found this out, I was so caught off guard. Cause I remember like I was always allergic to mosquitoes and everybody always being paranoid about me by mosquito bites. So I was always fearful of mosquitoes, but I didn't know anything about ticks. So now when you went to your doctor and you gave the doctor a description of your, of your symptoms at this time, do you think your doctor thought about Lyme at all? Was there any discussion about Lyme or were you just given some other type of diagnosis? No, he essentially just gave me like medication for the dizzy spells that there was never a mention of Lyme until like a few months ago in my life. Now, looking back, I'm going to ask you to just focus on this, um, this event when you were 19. Do you believe that you suffered a tick bite just before you began to show your symptoms? Or do you think you may have suffered a tick bite during your travels while you and your mom were traveling in different places? And then this event when you were 19 just occurred because there was some either stress in your life or because of some challenge with your immune system. So I've been going back and forth with this because... I feel like I'm obsessed with like trying to figure out when this happened. But also I, during my last year of high school, I went on a scene on a trip upstate and it was for, you know, like our senior class. Uh, I was 17. It was probably like December of 2007. And I remember it was December and it was so warm. Like it was, it was the weirdest thing because we had anticipated to go sledding and there was no snow on the ground. And then my second day there, I got so sick, like with abdominal pain and a few of us got sick there and they told us it was probably food poisoning, but my stomach issues lasted about six months. So part of me feels like it may have happened there, but then I'm not really sure either because like I told you, I'm like really allergic to mosquitoes. So I felt like maybe it happened on one of our vacations when I was a kid and it just, the symptoms just started really bad when I was 19, but I go like back and forth. So now let's talk about how your symptoms progress. You're 19 years old, you're at CCNY, you're about to now make some changes in your educational experience. And how are your symptoms developing? So yeah, so that first day that it happened, I kind of blew it off. And then I remember it lasted about two weeks and that's when I started to worry. So I went to the doctor and they gave me some medication and then he said, you should go to a, an ENT. So I go to the ENT, And they do all these tests on me and they give me some more medication. Like literally it's like, no one's giving me an answer. So then they say, "Um, we're not really sure. So you should go to a neurologist. So I go to the neurologist and they do like an MRI, uh, CAT scan, some tilt table test, like all these things. And then they're like, we don't really know either. You're like, your labs are fine. I feel like I've been hearing that for 10 years. Your labs are fine. The tests are normal. Um, We don't know. And then they send me to, this physical therapist that they're like, Oh, maybe the crystals in your head are like not lined up. And they, they do like these T 
PT sessions with me and I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, I feel like, like I could feel like it was a waste of time, but I'm doing it because they're doctors and I'm, and they probably know more than I do. So I trusted them. And then after that, I'm like still like, this is like a year later and I still have the dizzy spells and my head is like pounding every day. I go back to my, my primary care doctor and he asked me like, are you depressed? And I'm like, well, I mean, of course, <laughs> like who wouldn't be depressed right now? So they give me antidepressants. And surprisingly, I took the antidepressants for a month and the headache started to feel better. So then I kind of blamed my headaches for all these years on being depressed. Right. So let's, let's revisit this window. So you have about a six month window where you have these developing symptoms and you go from doctor to doctor to doctor. And what were the symptoms that you were describing to them? Was it just the headache or were there other symptoms that you were suffering? No, it was just headache. So I could feel like the back of my head always had pain. So like, I guess from like the crown of your head to like where your neck is, I had pain all the time. It kind of felt like someone was like literally like banging on the back of my head mixed with not, I explained that as vertigo at the time, but it was kind of like a rocking sensation. So I always felt like I was going to fall over. Those were the only symptoms I had at the time. Now, were you suffering from any brain fog at that time? Meaning, were you having problems processing information? At the time, no. It was really just that, those um, symptoms that I had. How were you doing at school? Were you able to perform at a high level in the school setting, or were these headaches impacting your ability to perform at school? Oh, I was tanking. Like, <laughs> at the end of that year, I think, my GPA went from like a 3.3 to like a 1.9. So I remember I was actually on probation to be kicked out of school because my GPA was too low. And how are things going in your social life? Was the terrible symptoms that you were, you were feeling, was it having an impact on your ability to be social? And how did your friends react to you if you weren't able to be social? Um, I mean, since I was working so much and going to school, I didn't really have much of a social life. But my boyfriend at the time was kind of concerned because he was like, I don't, like, why is this still going on? We were just really confused, and I spent most of my time with him. Honestly, like, all the friends I had at that time are no longer my friends because I was, I literally couldn't do anything. And how was your mom at that time? Was, you know, was your mom beginning to doubt that you were really physically sick because you were going to all these doctors and you weren't getting a diagnosis? No, she was actually really worried. She actually lived out of state already. She was in Atlanta. So I feel like that made it harder for her because she wasn't close by. And then when she would come, she would see how bad I was feeling. And it, she, was, she just didn't understand what was going on. Because I really was like never sick growing up. So what happened from there? You had, you had your, your first six months of, of seeing five or six different doctors and healthcare professionals. They were giving you some medications that were not helping. And then there was, I guess, an antidepressant that you were receiving, and that gave you some relief from your headaches. What, what happened from there? Yeah, so from there, my doctor was like, this is kind of, he said this is our last resort pretty much because they don't know what else is wrong with me. So I was like, well, I guess. I'll try it because, I mean, I'm, I'm tired of feeling like this. So I, I start the antidepressants. He said, give it about a month or two to see how you feel, which, I mean, seems like an eternity when you feel like crap. And then about two to four weeks later, I found some relief. 
So literally I was like, oh, I guess I'm just depressed. I mean, if that's what they say, that's what it is. So I continued using them. And then I followed back up and he just said, you know, if your symptoms come back, just come back and we can either um, increase the dose or we can change to another medication. So that was the only answer I got at the time. Now, did you really believe at that time that you were depressed or were you just accepting that maybe that was a proper diagnosis because you were getting relief from the medication that you were being offered? Honestly, growing up, I always had a very low mood. Like I was always, I know I said like I did all these things, but at home I always felt sad and I didn't know why. Like as a kid, I would cry a lot. Honestly, like deep down, I didn't feel like that was the reason for what was going on with me. So you didn't believe that was what was going on with you, but you then accepted that as the diagnosis. And what did that cause you to do medically? I mean, I was still young, so I didn't know that I could like really advocate for myself and ask for more testing or do other things. So I just kind of accepted it for what it was. So how does your life progress from there? You, you're you're at CCNY, you are now going to change and you're going to go to Lehman College. How did that take place and what impact did your developing symptoms have on your ability to perform at your next college? So at that time, I think, so about six months later, maybe, I, I went back to the doctor. I'm trying to remember like the time of, like, timeline. And I definitely increased the dosage. And then um, I remember I went to Lehman and I really wanted to get into the program that they had because it was like the first year of the program and I remember the um, advisor telling me like wow your GPA is really low and I kind of explained to them like I've been having like medical issues so that my doctor actually wrote me an appeal stating that I was sick and that's why my grade was low so they actually just let me into the program because of that but I was still having the symptoms, not as terrible as I did in the beginning, but they were still there. So, so what did your doctor write in the note that got you into the new program? This young woman has a lot of symptoms. I don't know what they are. So I'm diagnosing her as crazy and please take her into your program. <laughs> no, it was more like I had missed school. I think I don't even remember what it said, but it definitely said something along the lines of something being chronic. I guess like my headaches being chronic and me missing out on school, and I was like on some treatment, supposedly, like air quotes treatment. So you ultimately get into the program at Lehman, and how are your symptoms developing, and what additional doctors are you now going to see? I would say, yeah, they were, they were pretty bad at that time. I wasn't even going to any more doctors, and this was like a time where I just was like, you know what, I don't know what's wrong with me, and if I die, I guess I'm just gonna die. Like, honestly, like that was kind of where I was at. I was like, I'm just going to go to school and try to live life as normally as I can. I know that sounds terrible, but I, I had just given up. Like I was so tired of going back to the doctor and them telling me like they don't know anything. So I kind of just accepted it as like some health issue I was going to have for the rest of my life. So you essentially decide to step out of the medical community and just accept that your sickness was what it was and you were going to just try to complete your education. Yeah, it was really hard. So now I'm going to ask you to look back for a minute. Now, now looking at that experience through your 30-year-old eyes as opposed to your 20-year-old eyes, why do you think that was happening? I mean, why do you think the medical community failed you? Do you think there were any 
specific biases that were a part of the medical system and the doctors you were seeing that played a role in your inability to get a proper diagnosis? I wish I would have requested more from my doctors. I feel like I wasn't, I don't know. I feel like I, maybe I wasn't angry enough. I don't know. Like I just, I'm always very like calm and collected. So I feel like they were just like, oh, I guess she seems okay. So it can't be that bad. And I feel like maybe if I would have really like, I don't know, been more passionate or I don't, I'm not even sure like what, like looking back now, I don't know. I feel like for women, we're already like bypass on, on these things. Like we're always thought to be too emotional or what, what you have it. And then I read that um, a lot of medical professionals think that black women don't feel pain as much as other people of other races do. So I don't know. It's, it's just not really confusing. So now you're being failed by the medical community. You step out of the medical community. You're now starting to, you're trying to get through your new educational program. And how do your symptoms develop? And how are the developing symptoms impacting your capacity to perform at school? Yeah, it was, it was pretty difficult, but I actually completed it in pretty much the timeline I had set for myself. Except for that one year, everything else I did, I finished on time. Um, I was actually working full time and going to school full time and still dealing with this, which now when I look back at it, like just thinking about it makes me exhausted because I don't even know how I did it. Um, there were a few times in college that I actually blacked out because I was so exhausted and the pain was so bad. I'd say there was about three times um, in those two years that I blacked out. You're in college. You're yeah. blacking out. I mean, you're, you're, yeah. you're fainting. And you're not going back to a doctor to find out what's wrong with you? Nope. I literally was just like, I'm just exhausted because I was working from 5 o'clock in the morning to 1 p.m. And then I would go to school from like 3 to 9. So I figured, well, I'm just literally killing my body with like this schedule that I have. So I only had like one day off, which was sometimes on Sundays. And sometimes I didn't even have that day off. So I was like, well, I'm just really tired. So, and I was like, well, I guess people in college always black out. I was like, oh, I guess this is a normal thing, right? Everybody's just exhausted. So I literally just accepted everything. Everything that happened to me, I was just like, oh, I guess this is normal because doctors say it's normal. Well, but you weren't going to doctors, uh, so they weren't able to tell you whether it was normal or not. And, you know, and, and I can't help but to believe that the reason you weren't going to doctors is because you weren't getting help, right? You weren't getting help right. for a lot of different reasons, probably in part because of your culture, probably in part because of your gender, but you weren't getting help. So you were just accepting all of these really weird symptoms as normal, or at least your normal. Right. Yeah. I was like, well, I would always blame it on something that was going on. So like the headaches, I was like, oh, um, they said it was depression. And then, you know, like I would black out and I was like, well, it's because I'm exhausted. Like who, who has these schedules and can like keep up with it? So everything, I just kind of blamed it on something that was going on. What, what right. else is happening and, and how does your life proceed from there? Um, when I was 22, I had moved in with my boyfriend and it was funny because like some days, you know, like, after I had like a long day, he would like rub my shoulders or, you know, give me like a little massage. And there was one day he like rubbed my shoulders and it hurt so bad. I screamed and I was like, what the hell? Like this, this is weird. So I started getting these muscle aches like all over my body. So the point where like, if you just tapped me, it felt like you hit me with a bat. So that started happening when I was around 22. 
And then, of course, I blamed it on something else. I blamed it on me working out too much. So I was like, oh, my, um, my muscles are just sore from working out too much because I was working in a, in a gym. And I was working out, like, all the time. <laughs> well, whatever time I had in between school and work. So I was like, oh, I'm just sore from workouts. And that's what that is. So now you're accepting that headaches are a part of being normal. You're accepting that fainting regularly is a part of your normal. And now you're accepting that terrible back pain is normal. What other kinds of new normal experiences do you have and develop during the course of, you know, the next couple of years? During this time, I was, I was starting to go, I started seeing a, a new doctor, like a new primary doctor at Mount Sinai. And I kind of gave her like the rundown of, what was going on and she was like oh so it's because of depression like literally she even um agreed that it was from depression uh they never even really acknowledged like the muscle pain i would see like other neurologists or uh really i forget like a bone doctor I don't... orthopedist <laughs> yeah an orthopedist. yeah there we go yeah <laughs> so i saw like orthopedist and they were like oh um it's probably maybe like fibromyalgia or something and i don't even know what fibromyalgia was at the time so I was like, okay, so I'm just in pain because I'm in pain. Like, there's no other reason why I'm in pain. But I, I felt I was just angry that I never asked for more. Like, I never requested more from my doctor. Well, that's because I guess you didn't think you were entitled to it, right? I mean, you just had all of these really weird things that you were now normalizing, including fainting and terrible pain. Uh, and, right. and unfortunately, because you were being failed by the medical community, you know, what would you ask more for? I mean, they, they, had, they had their go-to diagnosis. Rather than acknowledging that they were failing you and they weren't properly treating you for all of your physical symptoms, it was easy for them to just write you off as crazy, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I was also seeing a therapist too because I literally, at one point, I was like, there must be something wrong with me. Like, I'm, I have to be crazy. Like, I remember I was in school and I was like looking up all these like mental disorders and I was like, I probably have all of this. This is what's wrong with me. Like, I literally was writing myself off as, like, a nut job at the time. So let's talk about that, right? So now, now you're doubting yourself. You're doubting your own sanity. You're doubting your own capacity. You're doubting your right to ask for a, a diagnosis for all your physical injuries. You're doubting whether or not you even have a right not to faint. How is that now impacting you socially? Uh, you, you said that you had moved in with your boyfriend and you were in – a, an intimate relationship. How is all of this in, impacting your intimate relationship? We're obviously no longer together, but <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely, he was pretty supportive for what was going on, but at the time he had actually gotten sick also. So it was just, I actually ended up being his caretaker, which sent me to like a downward spiral mentally. Like he was so bad, he had to take time off from his job. And I actually became his caretaker. So I was kind of just, I put my issues like on the back burner for the time being. Now, looking back, Rice, do you think it's possible that you may have infected him with Lyme disease? When I did my research, I feel like I may have. I'm not completely sure, but I don't know. I feel like it's definitely a possibility because he was kind of, his symptoms, he had like, a lot of acid reflux and then he was like even like twitching like it was like neurological things were going on with him and now when i look back at it i'm like oh my god maybe he had lyme disease too like maybe i gave him lyme disease so now we're seeing your undiagnosed lyme disease have a number of different impacts right you you're you're doubting yourself you're 
you're doubting your right to be healthy. Your, your partner is now in a really bad way, maybe even suffering from seizures. What, yeah. other, what other impacts were your now developing tick disease symptoms having on your life? Meaning, was it impacting you socially? Was it impacting you spiritually? What other problems or challenges were you facing now that you were dealing with this undiagnosed tick disease? So before I used to go out to like these little social events because I'm a salsa dancer. So they would have these social events um, either like Saturday nights or on Sundays, like early in the evening. And I would meet up with like a group of, you know, dance friends. That's what I did from like starting at like 13 years old. And I literally just stopped going. Like I stopped going out. I stopped literally talking to anybody. Like I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want them to ask me what was going on. I was just so like, I put myself in like this bubble and I didn't want anybody to literally like be around me. I literally spent all my time with my boyfriend and or at school or at work. Like I didn't want to talk to anybody. It was so bad. Like I remember one day I was in the train station and I had planned to like jump in front of a train. And I don't remember what happened, but I remember like a few hours later I was in a psych ward. And I had none of my stuff. Like I couldn't make any phone calls. It was probably like one of the worst days of my life. I wasn't, they took me to Bellevue and they were just, um, they like asked me all these questions to like what was going on. And they had to call my therapist to make sure I was actually getting treatment for depression because I was so low. Like I wanted to take my own life. So now how old were you, right? So when, when you had this event and you had the, the requirement that you'd be hospitalized at Bellevue? I was 21. So did anything change in the way that you were now being treated? So when you went to Bellevue, I'm assuming that they did a physical exam. And did any of the doctors at Bellevue suggest that perhaps you had a physical ailment that was causing the emotional challenges that you were facing? Nope. I was just questioned by, I think, a psychiatrist that was there for like a few hours. And then she spoke to my therapist. And I guess whatever, they kind of like... Um, decided that I wasn't a harm to myself for others. I don't know how they decided that was like eight hours, but then they released me and it was kind of never mentioned ever again. How does your life now proceed from there? Are you still in school? Are you getting ready to move into the workplace full time? How are things going for you personally at that time? I was still in school and working like that incident. We kind of like, it's, we just really never talked about it. Like most people don't didn't know about that until years later. But yeah, then I had moved in with my boyfriend, like I said, and I literally just kept trying to live a normal life. But every time the headaches would come back, I would go to my doctor and she would just say like, oh, well, I guess you've built like a, an immunity to this. So we're going to uh, increase the dosage. And then they would increase the dosage and I would kind of feel some relief. And then if once I hit the top, like the highest dosage, then they would change the medication. So I've been on like three different antidepressants in every single dosage. And how long did they pump you up with this medication before it stopped working? Sometimes it would last about a year or two. So that's kind of how I stayed on them for a while. Because there would be times where I'd be on them for a couple of years and I would still feel okay. But then... Uh, in the last few years, I had to keep going to like keep changing the dosage. So that's kind of when I started to think, like, okay, like something else is going on here. And how were your symptoms developing? Were they still the same consistent 
type of symptoms that you were having where you had headaches and you were fainting and you had those type of symptoms or were you now beginning to develop new symptoms? So like the, the blacking out thing only was a few like isolated times. The headaches and the, the unsteadiness was consistent. Um, and then I guess when I was about 25, I started getting really bad um, pain in my shoulders. It felt like, like I had like rocks in my shoulders and my shoulder blades. So that's when I went back to like an orthopedist and eventually they would give me um, cortisone shots, which would give me some relief and then the pain would come back. So they didn't really have an answer. They were like, oh, it's just muscle pain. Even though I, I did like an MRI and everything for that too. So now you started having these physical shoulder pains in your 20s and now they're developing even worse in, in your mid-20s. In your early 20s, you said that your, your boyfriend was massaging you and you felt this terrible pain in your, in your shoulders and now they're, now they're developing even worse when you're 25. Yeah, yeah. Were there, were there any other symptoms developing as time was now moving forward into your later 20s uh, and before you got to your 30th birthday? So the muscle pain started getting worse and then I say when I was my end of like 27, I started getting joint pain. So joint pain like in my wrist and my knees and my ankles. And my first thought was, oh my God, I have rheumatoid arthritis because my father has severe like rheumatoid arthritis and my grandmother had rheumatoid arthritis. So I was like, oh, I like, I was like self-diagnosing like <laughs> everything. So then I went to a rheumatologist who did like all the testing, tested me for um, RA for lupus for MS like all of these things and he said that wasn't it he said your job is what's giving you pain because I had a job that was physically demanding where I had to lift a lot every, like every day and he said oh it's your job so they sent me to physical therapy for that too so now you were you're at a rheumatologist whose job it is is to determine whether or not you are suffering from some sort of a disorder that probably could be a tick disease. He right. he finds that you don't have any of the symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis and he doesn't have any other way of diagnosing you yet he never offers you a a Lyme test. Nope. He said we're going to test you because I had mentioned my family history. He said, I'm going to test you for RA, uh, we'll do a lupus test, and MS. Those came back normal, so I don't know what to tell you. Like, that's literally what they said. You should go to um, PT and you should quit your job. That's literally what I was told. Now, Risa, you had said that you were a really athletic young person, and now we, you know, we're focusing on this window of your life between when you were, I guess, 22 and 27. How are things changing for you in that window? Were you still physically active? Were you still an athletic person or were you beginning to slow down because of the symptoms that were developing from your tick disease? Um, I completely stopped dancing. Like I never, I didn't go out anymore to dance. I didn't do any dance events like I used to, um, maybe like here and there, like once a year or something. I've had a consistent yoga practice um, my whole life. So that I always kept up with. And actually, before I went to this rheumatologist, I was actually working out at this boxing gym that I had to stop because my ankles were like giving out when I was running laps with the team. So I would run around, like we would run outside to warm up and then we would do like these crazy workouts, like lifting tires and battle ropes and all these things. And one day, like I was running and my ankles just caved in and I'm like, what the hell? Like, so like weird things just started happening even more and more. 
So that's why, that's why I went to the rheumatologist and I didn't get any answer. Now, while all of these events were developing and as your illness was developing, did you ever do any research on your own? And did you ever come across anything that suggested that you may have been suffering from Lyme disease? Surprisingly, I had never come across the word Lyme, the words Lyme disease. I literally was so obsessed with thinking I had just some autoimmune disease, like the ones I mentioned. And I was pretty sold that I had one of them. And either the test was wrong or I don't know, it was like a false negative. Now, did you feel better about now having a physical diagnosis and now not believing that you had a mental illness that was causing you to have all of these challenges? Or were you just sort of just in a mess where you felt like you were mentally ill, you were physically ill, you just had a whole mess going on? Yeah, I was like, I was kind of in in between both. So I'm like, okay, I guess like I'm depressed. I guess I have all these things. I'm just like, Jesus, like what the hell is wrong with me? Like, I was like, I can't, like, this can't be life. Like, I remember I was just like, this can't be life. Like, I was like, maybe I'm just being punished. Like, maybe this is how I'm supposed to live. I was really, I was just confused. I, I, I was, there was so much going on. I, I didn't, I didn't even know what to believe anymore. Russ, on one of the posts that you put up on Instagram, you, you put up a picture of yourself when you were 20 years old. And it's a beautiful young woman who you said was very interested in being loved and having a big family. And... How did things change between the time that you were that 20-year-old kid celebrating your 20th birthday and now you're 27 and in this physical and emotional mess? Were you upset that you were unable to achieve your goals? Had you achieved your goals? Where, where were you at that point? So at, by that time, I had split from the relationship I was in and I moved back home. I felt like I didn't, I felt like I didn't, achieve anything I wanted to achieve. I mean, I had finished school, but I wasn't in the job I wanted or I thought I would be like, you know, like living on my own and I'd have money and all. like, you know, I was like, I went to school and did all the right things and I still wasn't where I wanted to be. So I was, I felt like really defeated and I just, I was questioning like why this was happening to me. And where were you socially? Did you have any friends? Did you have a support system? Or were you as isolated at 27 as you seem to be during your 22nd and 23rd birthdays? No, I mean, I had better friends at the time, but they weren't friends that I had from earlier in my 20s. So they didn't really know what had happened to me prior. So it was always hard to talk about because people weren't around. I only have actually I only have one friend that was with me through all of this who probably is the only person that knows like the whole story. So now how did your symptoms develop after you turned 27? The, I went to that rheumatologist and then he told me it's your job. So I literally was like, well, it, my job was physically demanding. So I made plans to leave that job to find another job. Um, but in between that time of me trying to transition to another job, I went to another doctor and he looked over my medical history and said, you have fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. And I'm like, okay, uh, literally didn't do any tests. He just looked at my medical history and was like, well, if they did all these tests, that means you have fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. And there's no explanation for that. So I wasn't, I wasn't happy with that. Cause at this point I'm like, I think I'm what, like 28 now. And I'm like, okay, this, this is, gone on for way too long 
So I left my job and then I was feeling a little bit of relief, but I was still in so much pain all the time, like literally pain every single day. Like the pain is not going away. It's consistent. It's every day. I can't do anything. So I'm like, I'm going to find, I'm going to go to a million doctors until someone tells me something else. So I go to another doctor and she says, I want you to see our head of medicine here. And I'm just like, great. She doesn't know anything. Now I have to see somebody else. So I was actually going to cancel the appointment because I was so annoyed that no one could tell me what was going on. And then I said, you know what, let me just go. And I go into the office and she asked me, tell me everything. And she said, the, my, my partner said, you've been experiencing this for like almost 10 years now. And I said, these are my symptoms. I don't know what to do anymore. Like, I, I don't get it. And she said, have you ever been tested for Lyme disease? And I remember my response was the bug thing. And I was like, no, I don't really know what that is. All I knew was that you guys from a bug. Like, I literally said a bug. I didn't even say a chick. <laughs> and she said, I'm going to test you for that. And I said, okay, at this point, I don't care. Test me for whatever you got to test me for because I don't know anymore. And then about two days later, I get uh, an email because I have, like, this online portal. And it says, hi, literally this is what it says. Hi, your labs are fine, but you did test positive for Lyme disease. So I'm going to treat you with two weeks of doxycycline, and then we'll follow up. That was literally what it said. And I'm just like, wait a minute. So you mean to tell me all these years of all this crap that I've gone through, I have Lyme disease. It's not that serious. You're going to give me two weeks antibiotics and all this is going to be over. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. And I was at my job and I burst out crying. I called my mother and she was like, I don't know if I can curse, but she was like, you know, okay. And she was like, what the fuck? Like, she was like, you got to be kidding me. You got to be kidding me. Like, you got to be absolutely kidding me. Like, everybody was just like pissed off. And I'm just like, I don't understand what's happening. Is this bad? Like, is this something that goes away? Like, I don't even know what Lyme disease is. And then I, of course, I become obsessed with Google and what Lyme disease is. But, but Raisa, I, I want to know what was causing you to be upset and who you were upset with, meaning were you and your mom upset with the medical community? Were you upset with the, the diagnosis that you were receiving at that moment? What was, what was causing you to be upset? I wasn't mad at the diagnosis. I was mad at every doctor I'd ever seen. Like, I was like, I want to sue everybody. That was like my first reaction. I was like, I, I don't understand how I, I got a blood test and all of a sudden I have an answer when I've had a million blood tests in the last 10 years. So let's now revisit that. We, we had talked a little bit earlier about why you think your doctors were not taking you seriously and they were writing off all of your symptoms as a mental illness uh, rather than a failure on their part to properly diagnose you. Now you're th- almost 30 years old. You're much more mature. You've been through this terrible journey for a third of your life and a doctor finally takes a blood test and runs the proper testing and comes up with a diagnosis. Why do you think this happened? Why do you think that, you know, you had to wait 10 years before you found a doctor who would properly test you for Lyme disease? I don't, I don't know. Like, I feel like it's a mix of me being a woman, me being a black Hispanic woman that I was just never taken seriously. But at this point, when I saw this doctor, I was so frustrated like I, I was, I was so emotional. Like I was crying and I was like, I, I, I was like, I lost 10 years of my life and I'm never going to get it back. And I'm like, so upset. Like I was like, I didn't do the things I wanted to do. Like I didn't 
I didn't end up in the career I wanted to end up in. Like I stopped dancing. I stopped modeling. I gained all this weight. Like I'm just, I feel like I don't even know who I am anymore. And that's when she just looked at me and was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to figure this out. And I was like, Jesus Christ, it took 10 years with someone to tell me that they're going to help me figure this out. So let's explore this a little bit more. So why do you think the medical profession doesn't treat women the same way it treats men? I honestly think they just think we're dramatic and emotional. And I feel like they think everything that happens to us is because of emotions and, and hormones. And they just kind of write it off as that. Everything's about hormones. Like, that's personally but, what I think, but I'm not sure. No, right. So most of the research shows that it takes the average doctor about 12 seconds to interrupt a patient when a patient is describing his or her symptoms. Do you believe that doctors were, in fact, listening to you when you were describing all the things that were going on? Or do you think that they were jumping to a conclusion very quickly because, at least in part, you're a woman? Oh, they were, they, yeah, they definitely don't listen much. That's for sure. I've the the doctor that diagnosing with Lyme disease she's probably the only doctor that listened that long to me because our appointment was about 45 minutes and that's the longest I've ever been in a doctor's office like in a exam room I'm usually rushed in and out and I don't even have time to explain everything now let's talk about why you believe that your culture may have played a role in your doctors not listening to you do you think because you're Hispanic the, there is an inclination not to uh, listen to you and take you seriously? Or do you think that that was not a factor in the diagnostic problem? I think it has more to do that I'm racially black because a lot of doctors feel that we are higher, that we can, we, we don't feel pain as tolerant? pain as, yeah, we're more pain tolerant than people who are white, which I've read that that's very common in the medical field. So I feel like maybe they thought I wasn't really in that much pain because I wasn't like screaming or kicking and, you know, doing all these things. I was literally just talking and telling them this is what I feel. And I don't know why. Like I wasn't I never made a scene or anything. You know, I, I always and I felt like I never wanted to make a scene because I didn't want to be like that black person that was making a scene. So I was like, let me, you know, stay calm and collective before, you know, they send me back into a freaking Bellevue or something. And I didn't want to be that person. I felt like they always they always hung that psychiatric diagnosis over my head and I never wanted them to blame it on that so I always tried to be like calm on every appointment so I guess on some level you believe that you were less entitled to advocate for yourself because because you're racially black yeah also just to throw this in there when before I had went to that rheumatologist I was at work and I was in so much pain that my job sent me to the emergency room and I'm in the emergency room and I can't even move my neck. Like I can't even turn my head. I can't do anything. I'm literally like stiff as a board. And a doctor comes in in the emergency room and it's a black man. And I'm like, oh my God, like he's probably going to believe me. Like finally someone that looks like me is going to believe me. And he doesn't even spend, he doesn't even come near me, touch me, nothing to see what's going on. He said, your labs are fine. And the reason why you're in pain is because you're depressed. That's literally what he said to me. And this was, this was probably a year before, I'm trying to think, this is probably, yeah, like a year before I got my Lyme disease diagnosis. So let's explore that a little bit further. So do you believe that the biases are built into the system and it doesn't really matter what, what the gender or the races of the treating physician, that the, that the biases that exist in the system exist regardless of who the person is that's going to be treating you? I think it exists in the system because... I mean, they're, every, 
all medical professionals are taught the same. So I feel like that's why he reacted that way because maybe he himself believes it too. But at first I didn't know really much about that. So I thought, oh, this person looks like me. So he's going to believe what I say. So I figured there would be like some common ground here. And then when I didn't get that, I was like, okay, this probably isn't, this isn't what I thought was going to happen here. So I kind of just started doing my own research. And then I found that other doctor who essentially diagnosed me. But it sounds to me that you had sort of the triple whammy um, working against you from a bias standpoint, because although this doctor looked like you racially, he was still a guy and probably was working with the same biases that any other male doctor would be working with if he were diagnosing a woman. Right. He saw like Lexapro and major depressive disorder on my chart and was like, well, that's why she's in pain. That's another thing that I guess we haven't explored fully, which is you walked in with this whole history of having been misdiagnosed with a mental illness, and that diagnostic bias was something else that you couldn't overcome either. Right. It was like, I felt like now when I look back, I'm like, so I didn't have major depressive disorder. Like I, I struggle with that now because I was so, I became such an advocate for like mental health that I was like, okay, well, I have major depressive disorder and I'm going to conquer this and I'm going to help other minorities and people of color with major depressive disorder. And that's what I'm going to do. Like I became like this complete mental health advocate, not knowing that something else was wrong with me. So now you have your diagnosis of Lyme disease and you become, I guess, like everyone who's had this experience, a Lyme geek where you're doing all kinds of research online. (laughs) Yeah. And so now, now, now the, the new Lyme geek, Rice of the Lyme geek is, is, is doing her work. And what do you start to do to try to heal from your Lyme? Because I understand you had a short course of, of doxycycline, which didn't work for you. And of course it wouldn't work for you. So what do you do from there? Um, so when I took the doxycycline, my symptoms got so bad, I couldn't walk straight for a few days. So then I went to, I went back to the doctor because I'm like, I, I, I can't, I don't even have like a quality of life now. Like, I don't know why I'm feeling worse. And she's like, oh, I don't know either. (laughs) And I was like, wow, great. So I'm back to square one with the, I don't know. So she said, you have to go to a neurologist. And I'm like, Jesus, I've been to like so many neurologists. So I go to the neurologist and he goes, he, you know, I told him my whole medical history, why I'm there, what happened. And he said, where are your parents from? And I said, my mom's from Puerto Rico. My dad's, you know, born and raised in New York. And he said, you're probably HIV positive. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? He said, yeah, you're probably HIV positive. Have you been tested for that? And I was like, yes, I'm always tested for that. Like, I keep up with those kinds of tests all the time. And then he gives me some pamphlets on how to deal with headaches. And I'm like, sir, it's literally been 10 years. I, I like, this is not, this is not what I asked for. So I literally walked out of that appointment because I was so pissed off that he even assumed that that was what was wrong with me and didn't even, this is before I even ordered any tests or anything. He just assumed I'm Caribbean and you're HIV positive. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Well, Rice, I, I have to stop you there because I'm just blown away. You're, you're treating with a doctor who has finally diagnosed you with a blood test and you take the doxycycline. She sends you to a neurologist to do a follow-up about your Lyme disease and its response to the doxycycline. And he talks to you about HIV? Yeah, he literally said it like four times in my appointment, like mm, probably HIV positive. And I was like, okay, like, 
I was like, is this a joke? Like in my head, I was like, I don't even know how to feel. I wasn't angry or like mad. I just like, I was in shock. Cause I'm like, is this man serious? Like, is this man for real right now? And I literally walked out and I didn't, I ripped up the blood. The, he wanted me to do like more blood tests for like HIV and all these things. I was like, I already tested for these things. Like these are things that I get on a normal blood test. And I literally ripped up the paper and I walked out cause I was so angry. Like, I, I just couldn't believe like, the lack of like bedside manner which i've i mean i've had terrible experiences with a doctor but that was probably the worst experience i've ever had but it seems to me that that the challenge that you've been facing all along or or yeah, at least the overlay that i see is that your gender your race and your culture have unfortunately caused you to have to work within a bias system where no one's really listening to you. You finally find a doctor who listens to you. She finally tests you properly. She finally gives you diagnosis. And then you go, you yep. go to a follow-up and you run into the same bias that you've been dealing with during this whole window of 10 years before you got your proper diagnosis. Yeah. And now, like, if I speak to her now, she's like, I don't know why you have these symptoms. She's like, you've been treated for Lyme disease. So she said, those two weeks of antibiotics that have wiped out all those years that you've been sick. And I'm yeah. like, this is for real. This, this, I feel like it's like I'm like living in like the twilight zone or something. Now, Rasha, did any of your doctors talk to you about herxing and that the death of the, of the bacteria may have been causing you to have a reaction, a, a detox reaction? So the only reason I found out about herxing was because I joined an online support group on Facebook. And I told them what was going on. And I'm like, I don't know what to do anymore. I took this medication and now like... I can't even walk straight. And they were like, look up herxing reaction and all these things. And literally I was like, that makes so much sense because then about a month later, I felt better in terms of the headaches. Everything, my body was like killing me. So they were like, you probably were having a herxing reaction. And I'm like, so why didn't my doctor tell me this? And they were like, welcome to the Lyme world. And I'm like, oh great, what does that mean? <laughs> and then I saw everybody else's stories on the in the group and I started searching uh like chronic Lyme and I was like oh great now I'm gonna have to deal with this forever well but Rice, let's talk about that so I feel horribly for you because because you've not been treated well at any point during the course of your medical journey except for a doctor who at least properly diagnosed you but that then sent you to a place where you could now get information from other people who were having the challenges that you were having so how did you go from being failed by the medical community to another community where you're beginning to get proper information in the support group i'd say there's about like 20,000 people and i finally felt like wow like there's other people who've been through what i've been through like i'm not the only one who's gone through this and for so long too because a lot of them have gone through it for so long and i just always like I finally felt like I found people who understood what was going on with me. Cause it's hard to like talk to anybody when they're not going through it. People can, you know, they can listen and try to understand, but they just, it's hard for them to understand. Cause it's, it's such a confusing thing. And to talk to these people, I finally felt like, wow, I've like found my people or something. Like I found like my group and these people have become like my family at this point because the medical community doesn't even acknowledge that we exist. So, Rice, how are you now doing? Where, where are you in your treatment journey and how are you doing? So, I had made an appointment to see a doctor, um, like a Lyme literate medical doctor. And then, funny, one of my mom's friends 
her like coworkers, sister, like a whole long line of people was treating for Lyme disease at this holistic clinic in Atlanta. And my mom was in Atlanta. And she said that she had been feeling better after about six months to a year. So I was like, I'm going. If she feels better and that's what I have to do, like, that's what I'm going to do. So I called and I went and I um, made an appointment and I flew down like two weeks later. And I told them what was going on. Like they, they had spoke to me on the phone and they were like, you are one of many thousands of people that we've heard the same story from. Um, and we're going to help you get better. And that was the first time any person has told me that they're going to help me get better. So how long so ago now, was that? Uh, I'm sorry, Russia. How long ago was that? And what is the name of that clinic? Um, it's called Longevity Health Center. It's in Roswell, Georgia. Um, this was about a month ago. So I've been treating with supplements and herbs and um, like these shakes that I drink for inflammation. And I've had to change my diet completely because most things that I eat will hurt, like in terms of bread or meat or dairy. So I'm on like a really specific thing that I have to do right now. And they, they're they just going to keep checking up with me. Um, in a few weeks, I have to do like a remote check-in. And then I'm going back in May for them to do a follow-up to see what else we're going to do or see how I'm doing and see what else we need to change. So I know you're, I know you're new to this treatment protocol, so I, I, I don't want to ask you to, to be too aggressive about telling us how you feel, but how are you feeling? I mean, are you excited about working with these folks? And do you think that you know, this may be the place where you're going to get the help that you finally need? I mean, in, in my appointment, it was about, I was there for about four hours and I felt like so supported. Like I have never, in all these years, like no one had ever, I'm sorry. Like, it's okay. No, we, Russell, we, <laughs> we understand. And, and this is, this, it is terrible that you went to see 30 doctors and they all gave you less time than the one doctor who finally diagnosed you. And now this treatment facility that's, that's finally giving you the attention that you deserve. So it, it, it's, it's okay to be, to be upset. But, yeah, it just it just feels so unfair. Like, like those are years that I'll never get back. Well, but let's let's talk about the blessing, Risa, because you know you you're right. You're not going to get those those ten years back, and it's terrible that you suffered all those losses. But you're doing some really cool things that I'd like you to focus on with us because you have you have beautiful social media where you're really <laughs> um, sharing with folks and trying to help people to shortcut you know, a, a really bad experience. So can, can you share with us what motivated you to start reaching out to other folks after you found your people? Honestly, I don't even know. Um, I just, I had always been very vocal with my mental health online. I mean, I told you I went to school for like film and video. So I always wanted to, always like to share stories. I knew I, would, I wanted to be a writer since I was like 13. So I always liked to write and, and I was always told that I was, People liked my writing and it was very engaging. So I always, you know, and I grew up in the era of social media. So I felt like it was just easy for me to share these things online. And then as I kept sharing things online, I kept getting all these people reaching out to me who were in the same boat. And I'm like, this is crazy. Like, this is so many people. It's not a few people here and there, it's thousands. And they're not just in the U.S., they're in other countries. I've gotten people who've written me from Scotland, from like Ireland. And the woman from Scotland told me that there's nobody in Scotland that even treats Lyme and she has to go to Ireland and all these things. So I just feel like I found such a community online that it's, that's probably like my biggest blessing is finding all these people who are 
you know, have experienced the same thing as I have. So I feel like I found like this family and I've made like all these friends, even if I don't even know them in person, they've become like my best friends. So how do you feel now that you've found your right people? And that's not to say that when you were helping and advocating for people in the mental health community, they weren't your people, but it sounds like they really weren't your people, that your real people were the, were the, were the Lyme disease folks who you're now dealing with. How does it feel now to finally have found your people and now finding yourself in a position where you're using these beautiful images and you're using your brilliant writing to inspire other people to overcome their challenges? It just felt like a weight was like lifted off my shoulders. Like, like I was searching for so long and like, oh, finally, like I found something, even if I'm, you know, it's not, there's not like a cure for this. It, it just feels good to have support. Like it, it makes everything less difficult to deal with. And, you know, I, I can share with you that you've been very positively responded to by the folks on our Instagram. Uh, you were kind enough to send us a, a short video before we uh, conducted this interview. And we've been getting unbelievable responses from folks who are being moved by your story. So I, I thank you for being so open and sharing so much, not only with uh, the folks that you customarily share with, but also with the folks in our community. So I'm going to ask you to share one last thing, Raisa. If, God forbid, your mom came into your room tomorrow morning and she had a tick biting on her on her leg what would you urge her to do so that she wouldn't have to lose 10 years of her life the way you've lost 10 years of yours oh god after probably i don't even know like having a heart attack at the site um probably try to take it off the correct way because i know there's a wrong way to take it off like you have to i think it's like you have to like pull it off and like not try to like twist it or anything to be honest i'm probably wouldn't even be the best person to take it off, but I would try my best because I don't even remember a tick biting me. So I didn't have that experience, but I wouldn't even call a doctor. I would literally just tell her we need to go see someone and get our antibiotics right now. Like no waiting, no nothing. And to keep up and be aware of symptoms that do arise and not to brush them off as something else, like to keep being consistent on if anything were to keep going. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Raisa Marie Parana. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Raisa Marie Parana, please visit our Facebook at Raisa Marie Parana. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank your listeners for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.